So sometimes the songs are chosen purposefully to line up with the sermon. Last week, Jim gave me a call, said, what you preaching on? And then I called an audible on him and didn't preach on what I told him I was going to preach on. And then this morning, he didn't ask me, but I, I, I wonder if he's hacked my computer because the songs he picked are lined up perfectly with what I would like for us to talk about this morning. I would like to, for us to discuss and learn some lessons from the cross. So if you would, please turn to Matthew chapter 27 to verse 27 as well uh, and join me there this morning. I'm going to have the scriptures up on the screen also, but if you'd like to follow along in your own personal copy of God's word, Matthew 27, 27 is where we're going to start. We have a lot of visitors with us this morning, some we've met before, some we've not. We're very appreciative to have you here. If you have any questions about the, the group of God's people that meet in this place uh, we hope that you'll stick around, let us get to know you, and, and ask those questions. It's our goal to have a Bible verse behind each thing that we do for the Lord here. As we meet as a church, and as we live for Him as Christians, it's important to put God first and to seek Him through His Word and through the example of His Christ, as we have uh, preserved for us in His Word, a sacrifice that we've remembered this morning. I want us to talk about that sacrifice and, and, and seek God through what we learn from the cross. For the past few weeks, we've been studying something of an unofficial and unannounced uh, series of lessons. I'll explain to you what I mean. Two Sundays ago, we studied Psalm 101. We were learning about the process of resisting temptation. And the lesson looked at Psalm 101 because in that psalm, the psalmist said, I will ponder the way that is blameless. I will walk with integrity of heart within my house, and I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. So I will overcome temptation by spending my time thinking about the things that are right. As Paul said, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, of excellence, worthy of praise, I'll think about these things. And I will live righteously even when no one is looking. I will strive to be of consistent faith and character seven days a week. And then I'll make sure not to set before my eyes anything that might cause me to be tempted. I'll try to remove those stumbling blocks from before me so that I can overcome temptation. Last Sunday... We looked at God's command that he gives to the children of Israel that as they enter into the promised land, they are supposed to utterly eradicate, remove entirely all of the high places from the land. Those high places were the sites that the Canaanites had previously used for their pagan worship. God says, I want you to get rid of all of those because he knows if they do not destroy those high places that they will and they do become a constant source of temptation for them, one to which they are continually yielding as they will go away from the Lord in order to chase after other gods. So their tragic example teaches us another lesson that's important in overcoming temptation, and that is that you don't leave any of it lying around. You don't leave any vestiges of sin from your past to continue to plague you and even have negative effects not only on your life, but on your family's life. And as was the case with Israel, it affected them for generations. And potentially it can do the same. There are many more bricks that we could add 
to the wall to try to help keep out sin. But we're going to go ahead this morning and just skip straight to the end of the matter. We're going to move on to the capstone, if you will, for overcoming sin and temptation. And that is to consider what God has done so that we could overcome sin once and for all at the cross. So in verse 27 of chapter 27, Matthew has come to the morning of Jesus' crucifixion. So let's read from verse 27 through verse 31 together. It says, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. So anytime you read through any portion of the gospel, and especially if you sit down to read one in its entirety, whichever gospel it may be, they are each remarkable for many reasons. But not least among those reasons, I think, is the way that each one of them records the account of Jesus' trial and scourging and crucifixion so matter-of-factly. Some of the most crucial and excruciating of moments during this entire process are often not described in the kind of detail that a a writer or a reader from our time might prefer. Now, certainly the, the contemporaries of these four men, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they didn't need much elaboration when it came to this subject. But even the scourging of Jesus, which is perhaps the most brutal moment for us to think about, it didn't require more than the four words Matthew gave it, almost in passing, in order for his audience to thoroughly appreciate what was being involved. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John's contemporaries didn't need a whole lot of elaboration when it came to this sort of trial, um, torture, and then crucifixion. But I'd suggest to you that the, 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 the succinctness of the, the, the accounts of Christ's passion there on the cross is also noteworthy for another reason. And that is because of all of the parables that Jesus ever taught. And we're studying those on Wednesday nights. We've been studying a number of them. We've gotten to, to enjoy the beautiful lessons and masterful teaching that Jesus exhibits in those parables. But of all the parables that Jesus ever taught, of all the different lessons that he ever gave to the masses, of all the discourses that he ever um, uh, taught to the, the crowds and the religious leaders or even to his disciples, where Jesus did his most profound teaching is here at the cross. One commentator said, and I like this, the cross is Jesus' ultimate parable, his ultimate illustration, and it should teach us many things. So I want to ask this morning, what does the death of Jesus teach us? Or what lessons can you and I learn from the cross? And lessons that will help us overcome temptation so that we can live worthy of the sacrifice that was made for us. Now, there are, are more lessons than, than any preacher knows what to do with. Um, you've got a nearly inexhaustible list. But since our time this morning is not inexhaustible, I've got three for you. So first of all, I would suggest to you that the cross of Jesus Christ ought to teach us to be in awe of what our God has done. 
When you read about the crucifixion of Jesus and when you think about what took place there, there are a number of, of emotions, of course, that the cross of Christ can evoke for us and, and the sacrifice of the Son of God, just a variety of emotions that, 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 that you are confronted with as you read such a, a striking thing take place. So anyone faces a pretty mixed bag of emotions, I would think, whenever you, you contemplate Jesus being scourged and killed in such a way. Because you see that suffering. And you understand this isn't just a man being put through this. This is God's own son. But then you also know that all of these killing blows are in fact God's killing blows against the devil. It's his winning moves, not sin's. So reading about the cross just confronts you with a variety of different uh, factors and, and, and points for consideration and a whole lot of emotions that come with, with all of those. When I first saw the Passion of the Christ, I don't know how many of you have seen that. I've seen that twice in my life. I saw it once when it first came out, and I saw it once after Crystal and I got married because she had not seen it. Um, when I saw it the first time, I remember quite well just how emotional I became having seen that movie. Um, that was a number of years ago. I was younger and far more susceptible to very strong emotions. But that movie was effective, I think, in one regard in particular. Now, I said I've seen it twice. So I've seen it once since then in recent years. And I'm sad to say I didn't find it quite as recommendable as I did the, the, the first time. Um, but what that movie did do was help my imagination when I read the gospel accounts of Jesus' crucifixion. Of course, when you're reading through narrative, your, your mind's doing the best it can to, to construct the scene and help you picture what's taking place. And I'd done the best that I could to imagine all that was going on based on what I'd read. But I've never seen anything like a crucifixion and certainly not anything like a scourging. And so watching that movie, even for its flaws, was just a remarkably emotional experience. And even watching it in the second time, appreciating the fact that they were maybe adding a little more drama than they should have, nevertheless, the brutality rings true. So as you try to appreciate all of the pain and the torturous offense that Jesus endures, it's fitting for a feeling like great sadness to be mixed with great thankfulness. It's fitting if you're moved to remorse over how ungrateful you know you once lived before coming to Christ. It is fitting to be filled with even anger at the ones who would do such a thing to the Son of God, your King, your brother, all of that. It's appropriate. And another emotional response that I'd suggest we need to learn from the cross is awe for God. May I suggest that when you and I think about Jesus hanging there on the cross, an important lesson that we need to learn is a sense of amazement as you contemplate a God who would bring such a thing to pass. Acts chapter 2 says this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So God planned to do this, and he did it, even though he knew most people, including the ones for whom he was doing this great thing, would not get it. They would not thank him, and they would even think him ridiculous. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 23, Paul says, We preach Christ crucified. 
He says that is a stumbling block to Jews and it is folly, or your version may say foolishness, to the Gentiles. It is ridiculous. They think it's dumb. He says, but to those who are called, be they Jew or Greek, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. He goes on to say, another verse down, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are considered to be nothing, to bring to nothing things that are, that are considered to be something, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So the idea of having God step into this world and solve its greatest problem by having his own son be rejected and killed by the very people he came to rescue, and then to have that rejection and that murder be the very means by which even the murderers themselves were saved, who would think of that? And I hope that struck you from time to time. Of Who in the world would ever think of this plan? Nobody in this world would think of that. So Paul says most of the Greeks, as far as they're concerned, they're thinking, this is the best you've got? They've got philosophies left and right to choose from, and this is the one you're, you're signing up for. Your God sent his son to be a human sacrifice. Give me five minutes and a piece of parchment, and I can give you a better philosophy than that. They thought it was ridiculous and not worth their time. And Paul says that as far as God is concerned, that you and I would never think of it as sort of the point. Because you and I have a problem that we can't fix in any way that we can imagine. He's the only one that can do it. He's the only one who can come up with a way to solve what is our greatest problem. And if you think about it, that's been a theme from, from, from ages ago, that man does not think the way that God thinks because he's not on the same level. And even still, it is amazing that we have a God who wants to help us elevate our thinking and start to see things from his perspective. And see just how important it is for Jesus to come here and yes, even to die. Because, and this is our second point, we need to appreciate just how serious sin is. And the death of Christ is what can show you that. So in our series from the parables, we've been talking about how much Jesus has to deconstruct when it comes to the typical Jewish expectation for the kingdom. How much he's got to rewrite they want liberation from the Romans. They're not even thinking about liberation from sin, let alone for themselves or for the world. Sin is the problem that God understood as the root problem of all man. And it took nothing short of the sacrifice of the Son of God to actually remedy that problem. So you think of, of Matthew chapter 26, as Jesus is there in the garden, he is praying and crying and pleading with God to find some other way within his will to have any other way for sin to be atoned. Father, please let this cup pass from me and praise it multiple times. Let there be another way for us to go about this. 
And as the, the Roman cohort approaches, God's obvious answer is, my son, this is the only way. If there was another way than that, don't you think that God would have chosen it? Now, I can't speak, of course, for God, but at least to the mind of a man, what parent would not grant their child's tearful, persistent request? Particularly if it was the best thing for them. And what parent wouldn't choose any other option, if there was one, than sacrificing their child? I wonder if any parent in this room can imagine doing that kind of thing and having to go through with it. So sin is something that is so serious. This was God's only choice if he was going to redeem us. And it's our sin that's made this necessary. Ours along with the rest of the world's. Our sin that's made it, that's required this. Which means you and I are the ones who've put God in this unimaginable position. Because God loves us so much that the idea of losing us is too much. And yet the idea of allowing his son to die is certainly no trivial thing. And you and I necessitated the choice. And he chose putting his son through that so that he could have us all again. So will I go out and sin tomorrow? Or later today. We talked two weeks ago about the mistake that we make if we resign ourselves to the, you know, I know I'm going to sin from time to time. I don't want to, but I know it's going to happen. Just accepting that I'm going to fail on occasion. We're, we're, we're kind of used to that. I'm so used to committing sin and then going in prayer to God and asking for his forgiveness that I forget sometimes, maybe you do too, the choice that I forced on him. I forget the, the price that was paid, or at least I certainly don't value it the way that I should. I forget just how lost I was without a God who was willing to pay the price for me. So we partook of the Lord's Supper this morning. We do that every single week. Why? Well, one, because we believe that's what the New Testament commands us. But then you might ask, well, why would that be God's command? And again, I can't speak for God, but perhaps this is why. Because the cross should regularly remind us of what it took for you and I to be a people. To be as our theme text for this year from 1 Peter chapter 2 says, living stones in a spiritual house for our God. To be purified for that purpose by having our sins pardoned. So when we come to this place on the Lord's Day and we get to, to eat of the Lord's Supper as we did this morning... And as we think about the cross through each day of our lives, we ought to be reminded of what it took for us to have this hope. And more than just that hope and that fresh start, a reward. My choice has necessitated the death of God's own son, and I get a reward if I cast myself at his feet because of what he did. So you and I get to share in his glory, as First Peter talks about, we've become both temple and priests. That's such a far cry from the punishment that I ought to receive because of my sins. 
And the reason that's so far removed from what is, is, is my due is because the great price has been paid on the cross by our Christ. And the cross ought to remind us of that each time we look at it. Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18, Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So as growing Christians, as people who are supposed to be spiritual, you and I need to understand this. The more spiritual you become, the more sinful you become. The more spiritual you become, the more sinful you become. The reason for that is the more you grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, the more you come to see sin for the filth and shame that it truly is. And that's what spiritual growth is. It's coming to appreciate the real disparity between the holiness of God and the sin that stands opposed to it that that once was and at times is again in our lives. And that must not be in our lives. So the more you appreciate the holiness of God, oftentimes the more unholy in contrast you feel. So the more spiritual you become, the more sinful you realize you are. And when you, when you perhaps have had the feeling that you are not the Christian you should be yet, that your faith is, is not what you want it to be yet. We're talking about growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. If you feel you've not done that and you've got that feeling that's not arrived for you yet. Why is that? Well, drawing back on previous lessons, it's because the high places are often still standing. It's because I'm still allowing sin too much room in my life. I'm not trying to ponder the way that is blameless, spending too much time fiddling around with things that are sinful. So what then would be the, the mark of somebody who is more faithful? Well, it'd be less sin in their life and a greater value placed by them on the things of God. So the more spiritual you grow, the less attention you give to sin and the more you see any room allowed for it as unconscionable. So your thoughts about sin transition from, ah, I know I shouldn't do that anymore, but I, I really kind of want to, to I am never going to do that again because I can't imagine sinning against God that way. How dare I, considering, and, and beyond the sin that I cannot commit, do not want to commit, I must do more good. I must give my all. So if you and I want to be spiritual, if we want to show the cross has, has impressed us, we must grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We must look to the sacrifice of our Lord and be more like Him. Because He willingly went to that cross for you and me. And that kind of leads to the final thing that, that Jesus' death on the cross teaches us, and that's what love truly is. English is a remarkable language. Um, whenever you need another nuance for a word, sometimes we just create a new word. Hebrew isn't exactly that way. They've got very limited voc vocabulary comparatively. Context is everything in Hebrew. Now, context is key for us, too, in many ways. But sometimes uh, words just have a specific connotation and no amount of context causes us to, to hear that word differently. That is not the case with the word love. That word can be nuanced any number of different ways. We have several words to talk about having positive feelings towards a thing or a person. But we use that word love 
in all sorts of contexts. For example, you might love Chick-fil-A. And I hope you have remarkably different feelings for your spouse than you do for Chick-fil-A. But we'll still turn around and use the same word to describe the feelings that we have for both things, even though those feelings are so different. How you feel about a food or a movie or a place isn't the same thing as how you feel about a person, but you and I will use the same word for it. I love my grandparents. I love Fridays. I love baseball. I love God. It's just one of the most vague English words we've got. But if you want the most complete, ultimate definition of the English word and the concept of love, what that word can be in its fullest potential, then the cross is the place you go for that. In John 14 and verse 30, Jesus says, I will no longer talk much with you. For the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me. So that the world may know that I love the Father. So Jesus says Satan has things in motion for me to be crucified. And that's going to take place. And it's not because we have to play by his rules. It's because this is what God wants. He's commanded me to sacrifice myself. So that's what's going to take place. And he says he is following that command and giving of himself that way because he loves the Father and he is absolutely going to go through it so, with it so that the world will know he loves the Father. And how does he show the Father that kind of love? It's by doing his commandments and doing them even when it requires so much of him. So we are talking about emotions earlier, feelings as well sometimes. Love is not just a feeling. True love is something that motivates you to a life that is defined by that love. And Jesus said, I'll go even to the cross so that the world may know that I love God. So Jesus teaches us what, what true love of, uh, and the true love of God really is. Uh, this is something that's talked about in the bulletin that you have today. It says that love is, is not just saying it, it's not just thinking, it, it's doing And the true love for God is not just saying that you feel it, thinking that you feel it. It's doing what the Father commands. And in verse 21 of this same chapter, Jesus says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him. I don't think that's the way the world usually thinks about love. Even in the context of serving God. You see the, the, the approach of, I love Jesus, but then a refusal to follow King Jesus' commands. That's not love. If the commands of God himself, whom I say I love, defer to my preferences, then he doesn't come first in my life. Because if you love someone, they come before you. Maybe you've encountered the thinking or had the thinking before yourself of, you know, I know I should do this. I know I should come to worship. I know I should study more. I know I should even tell people about faith in Christ. But I I really don't want 
to do those things. I don't want to come to all of those services. I, I don't want to, to, to try to find time in my busy schedule to do some of these things. I have enough of it. I think I've got enough. And, and if I, you know, did those things and, 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 and started making all of those different efforts because I'm commanded to, I, I'd just be kind of going through the motions. Because that's, that's not what I feel. May I suggest to you that thinking is backwards. Because looking to Jesus again for the example, how much exactly did he feel like hanging on a cross? And yet he goes to the cross anyway because he loves his God. And true love puts his will first regardless. And I'll tell you another thing. As anybody who's been married for any length of time, uh, for any length of time knows, sometimes either one of you or both may not be all that lovable. And yet your spouse is commanded to love you nonetheless. That is that choice. You might not feel that love very much. But you know what you've said you will do. And when you do what you said you'll do, even when you don't feel like it, or more importantly, when you don't feel like keeping God's commandments and you still make yourself do it. You know what that actually shows? It shows the love you think you don't feel. So the cross teaches us what true love is. You follow the example of our Lord by doing what God wants, no matter what we want, and sometimes even in spite of it. Or to put it another way, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus carried a cross to the greatest display of his love for God, and you and I must do the same. So I think there's three important lessons to learn from the cross. Here we go. One, awe. Awe. Of a God who'd do such a thing as that for us. And then the, the seriousness of sin that would require such a thing as that to save us. And the love of a God who would let nothing stand in his way. Even something such as this. In order to redeem us to himself. And the only question I have for you is this. How much do you love him? I hope you love him enough to turn away from temptation and overcome it. And if you're not a Christian, I hope you love him enough to repent of your sins, confess your faith in Christ, and be baptized into him. Or if you are a Christian, I hope you love him enough to put sin in its place, which is far, far out of your life, and to take up your cross and follow the Lord to showing your love for God. If we can help you in any way, show your love for the Lord. Please let us know, even perhaps now, while we stand and sing.